All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have this time to come to study your word, that we might come to think about the issues of life the way you would have us to think about these things, that we come to understand who we are as creatures created in your image yet corrupted by sin, and that once saved we have uh, nevertheless the process of spiritual growth, sanctification to go through that we can learn to walk by God the Holy Spirit in order to in order to please you and to serve you and to see the outworking of your plan in our lives. Now Father, we understand that the great challenge throughout history has been the challenge of religion versus the relationship that a person has with you on the basis of grace. And that's at the heart of the controversy and the conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees. We pray that you would help us to understand the significance of grace and the significance of our moment-by-moment walk in dependency upon you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And what we're going to look at today is the basic teaching that we learn from Jesus here, that we are born with deceitful hearts, but that there is a divine solution, and that divine solution begins with with regeneration. So we're going to look at the second part of this episode. We started this a couple of weeks ago. Then last week, I shifted over to look at the some Old Testament passages in Jeremiah chapter 2 related to the fact that, that this is not a unique problem to Israel. It's not a unique problem to this particular generation, and it's certainly not a unique problem to Jews. This is a problem that every human being faces, and that is substituting something else for the worship of God, seeking life, seeking happiness, seeking meaning in life, from somewhere else and something else other than the Word of God and an ongoing relationship with Him. And so we come to this particular episode, and just to bring everybody up to date with what goes on in the first nine verses, let me review this a little bit. The basic issue that we see in these first nine uh, verses is an issue related to authority. The scribes and Pharisees come up from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus, and they're going to use his disciples as leverage against him, as disciples who have not been observed to be washing their hands according to the Pharisaical ritual laws of cleansing, 
And so they assume that they are in violation of God's law. It's an example of how man often substitutes his own standards, his own ideas, his own concepts of righteousness and religion for what God says. And so the focal point at those first nine verses is this conflict between the revelation of God and the tradition of the elders or the traditions of man. So we have that conflict between religion, and religion always seeks to gain God's blessing on the basis of the works of righteousness that man does, and the relationship that Jesus is talking about with God that is based upon God's grace, that God is the one who provides us with the righteousness necessary for salvation. This goes back to the Old Testament the foundational example comes from Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, 6. Uh, God said, Abraham believed him and it was accounted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. That's our foundational, uh, foundational verse. Now, what's happened in this episode uh, previous to this is that uh, Jesus had fed the 5,000. If we put a map up here on the screen, Jesus and the disciples had gone from their hometown at Capernaum and they had gone across the northern uh, tip of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Bethsaida over here, and this is where the episode occurred with the feeding of the 5,000. And if you recall, there were the 5,000 men, plus there were women and children that were there, and uh, it came became late in the evening. They didn't have any food. The disciples are getting ready to push the panic button that all these people are here, and they don't have any food, and they collected... Uh, five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and it's not quite enough. And, and Jesus is able to feed the 5,000. So he's training them, in one sense, to come to understand that he is the one who provides nourishment and feeding. And as they will eventually be going out to serve him and to proclaim the gospel throughout the world, they need to understand that, that the sufficiency isn't in them. The sufficiency is in Christ, and he's the one who will provide the feeding. But at a more practical level, as they're passing out the food, what happens? They're not washing their hands. And so word of this would have gotten back to the Pharisees, and they uh, bring this as a charge against Jesus. And so uh, the next event that happened was uh, as they come back, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. The storm came up at night. Uh, Jesus isn't with him, and then he walks to them on the water, and Pete, we have the little episode with Peter. All of these are little training episodes, and so we're going to have another teaching moment and training episode here with the scribes and Pharisees. This time they came up from Jerusalem. They're coming from headquarters. They're coming from the ultimate seat of their authority uh, to challenge Jesus with that that disobedience, and they think they have him under or over a barrel. Now, this is the route they would have taken because they were in their self-righteousness. They were completely, uh, uh, for, I mean, they were completely opposed to crossing through the area of Samaria, which was dominated by sort of a mixed uh, breed group of people, mixed ethnicity. Some had come back. Some were Jewish and had been resettled there after the uh, uh, returned from Babylon. Others were of other ethnic backgrounds that had been settled there during the, uh, or after the time of the conquest with the Assyrians. And so they had their own tradi religious tradition. They, they rejected everything from 
the Old Testament other than the first five books of Moses. They had their own system of ritual, and they were completely at odds in their religious approach with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. So they were looked down upon by the Jews from Judea, so they would have taken the uh, long route going across to the east side of the Jordan and then going north uh, for their confrontation with Jesus. Now, the issue has to do with the fact that they are challenging the disciples that they haven't been, they haven't washed their hands. And what the Pharisees have done is to construct a system of additional laws beyond the 613 commandments of the, of the Mosaic law. Uh, that was the point of the violation that caused their, their divine discipline when they were removed from Judah in 586 B.C., and so in order to prevent the Jews from ever violating those 613 commandments, they constructed additional commandments that were not based upon the law uh, of, of Moses, and the idea was that if they could build this fence around the law, which is a term they used, then that would protect uh, the law from the law itself from being broken, and and so that became their tradition. But that elevated itself above the level of the authority of Scripture. And what, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we first studied this, is that the only washing that's mentioned in the Torah is the washing of the priest's hands and feet when he would come in to serve in the tabernacle and later, later the temple. He would come to the labor and he'd wash his hands and he would wash his feet. And they've added all of these extensive mandates on top of that in order to make sure that the people are are cleansed. And so all of these additional laws became quite quite burdensome. And not only that, they have additional laws that they are traditions that they set up that would really enable people to avoid having to do what the Torah said to do. And that's what Jesus pins them on in his uh, response to them when they challenge him over the fact that his disciples aren't washing their hands. And he turns around and says, well, why are you transgressing the commandment of God? Notice how here and in Mark 7, the emphasis is on the commandment of God versus their tradition. And Jesus makes the issue clear. You're transgressing what God said to do, and you're putting in its place what uh, man has said to do. And the law is given for a purpose, and it's not on the same level of authority as your traditions. And then he, in verse 7 he will call them hypocrites, uh, hypocrites in the Greek, which comes out, it's a term that comes out of Greek drama where an actor would put a mask on, and they, they are putting on the mask of being heavily devoted to God, but in reality what they are doing is turning against God and doing their own thing. So the problem here is, first of all, a problem of righteousness, I mean, excuse me, first of all, problem of authority, and second, it's a misunderstanding of righteousness. A couple of passages that come out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, 6, where Isaiah says that it's all of our uh, righteousnesses, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He's not saying our good deeds, I mean, excuse me, he's not saying our bad deeds, all of our unrighteousness, but our righteousness. Notice he says, we are all like an unclean thing all our unrighteousness, and then we all fade as leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. So 
four times he emphasizes that he's part of the group and it includes everyone, that no one does that which is right. Ecclesiastes, which is written by Solomon after he's trying to find happiness everywhere he can uh, apart from God, makes the observation in Ecclesiastes 7.20 that there is not a just man on earth. And he uses this Hebrew term tzaddik. And if you're familiar with Judaism, this is a dominant concept in Judaism. And it's the idea not only of righteousness, but of doing good deeds. And in Reformed Judaism, the term that sort of uh, governs everything is the idea of what they call tikkun olam. And tikkun olam is the idea that they are to repair the world. And this really dominates in Reformed Judaism and is really a basis for a lot of their uh, actions, their social action, and why there's a certain affinity between uh, Judaism and socialism. People often say, well, why are Jews liberal? And that's part of the answer is there, uh, in their view of, of man, there's no concept of of uh, original sin or total depravity. So man is inherently improvable, fixable, and repairable. And so in uh, especially Reformed Judaism, the idea is to repair the world. Well, that just has a certain affinity with leftist ideas, uh, social actions, social justice, Marxism. And, of course, many of the uh, Jews in America came over uh, or had their roots in the various uh, immigration uh, or mig- migrations, rather, from Eastern Europe to the United States starting in the late 19th century and through the early part of the 20th century when they came over and they were involved in a lot of the basic uh, uh, lab- common, labor, uh, em- common labor employment, working in the garment district in New York, things of that nature, and so they were part of the rise of labor unions. So there was this certain affinity there. And uh, this goes back to uh, this concept that man can do good. Man can improve himself. Man can be righteous and man can be just. And uh, Solomon says there's not a just man on earth. There's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So there's this emphasis on the universality of sin. And then in the New Testament, Titus says that it's, uh, Paul writes to Titus and says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus confronts them, he calls them hypocrites. This is not a concept that is going to uh, endear him to them any more, uh, any more than what he's already taught and said. And he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, and he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This introduces a major element of teaching in this section, and that is the problem with the heart. Their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Their, their worship is empty. A lot of people today think that if you come with a sincere heart that you can worship God and they don't understand the principles in the, New, in the Old Testament and New Testament related to cleansing and the importance of dealing with sin first before you can have a relationship with God. So their worship is in vain. 
and they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. That's the authority issue. We looked at Isaiah 29, 13, which says pretty much the same thing. They have, they give lip service to God. They honor Him with their lips. Their lips say, said the right thing. They went to the festival, celebrated the feast days. They recited the prayers. They sang the Psalms. They brought their sacrifices, but their heart wasn't in it. They were not devoted to the Lord. Deuteronomy says that we're to worship the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they're simply going through the motions. Their feet went to the right place and their hands brought the right gifts. Their lips said the right things, but their heart was wrong. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. The heart has to be fixed. And the only way to fix the heart is through regeneration, which is what Titus talks about. It's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what we see in this, as we saw last time, as we looked at Jeremiah chapter 2, where God is indicting Israel because they are, uh, they have turned away from him as the source of life, They have turned away from him and turned towards cisterns that they've hewn out themselves. He is the one who offers uh, the water that springs to eternal life, but they turn to their own ability to construct their own cisterns that will hold water, and it falls apart in the long run. What we learn from this is that God cares about what we do and why we do it. It seems like so many people get confused about this. We want to do the right thing, but we want to do it our way. But God cares that a right thing should be done the right way. A right thing needs to be done for the right reason, and it needs to be done the right way, the way that God has said that it should be done. And so God is looking for those who will serve him with a whole heart. This was the indictment that Samuel, the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 16, brought against the first uh, anointed, God, uh, God-anointed king of Israel, Saul. And Saul, uh, Samuel said that, that Saul was rejected by God because God wanted a king who would serve him with his whole heart, a king that would be after his own heart. And so Saul was replaced by David, and several times David is said to be a man after God's own heart. He was devoted to God fully, even though David failed many times, as we all do, the basic sum total of David's life despite the fact that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he tried to cover it up. He conspired with uh, Joab, the commander of his army, to have uh, Bathsheba's husband killed. All of these different things that happened, all the different sins that occurred in David's life. Nevertheless, God's, God's bottom line evaluation of David is he's a man after my own heart. That gives us great encouragement. Because like David, we all sin. We're all so aware of the fact that we are fallen, flawed, and corrupted because of sin. Yet, if our focus is on the Lord and we recover from sin through the use of 1 John 1, 9 and we uh, walk by the Spirit, then our, it demonstrates that our heart is focused on the Lord. 
Many times in Scripture, the emphasis is on this this heart attitude that we desire to serve the Lord. Second Samuel, excuse me, First Samuel sixteen says that God does not. See, as a man sees, he doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the inside, and God judges judges the heart. Now, last time we looked at the passage in Jeremiah 2.13 where God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. That's the first. They turned away from God. They rejected him, and he's identified as the fountain of living waters. And the second problem is they've hewn themselves cisterns. This is a metaphorical way to talk about the fact that they've constructed other religious systems. They've they've constructed other ways to find life, to find happiness, and to find meaning in life. So the problem that we run into again and again is that people define their relationship with God in terms of what they do. Oh, I go to church, I read my Bible every day, I miss one or two times a week, but I try to read a couple of chapters a day, I, I go to church, I give money to the church, I try to support different things that the church is doing, but but that's that's how I know that I am a mature believer, it's what I do. Some define their relationship with God in terms of what they know. They've memorized a lot of scripture. They've taken a lot of notes in Bible class, and they've got 15 three-inch binders on all of their notes that they've taken through the years in in Bible class. And they can answer a lot of questions. They've read some theology books, and they know a lot of information. Other people define their relationship with God in terms of how much they give and how generous they are and how much time they spend volunteering to help at the church. Other Christians try to define their relationship with God in terms of their social action, their social involvement, and others through various other activities. But that's not the criteria that God uses to measure our relationship to him. See, this is, again, the same problem an earlier generation, earlier than Jeremiah had, uh, the generation with Isaiah 100 years before Jeremiah, God said, bring no more futile sacrifices, incense is an abomination to me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meaning. Well, wait a minute, Lord, isn't that what we're supposed to do? That's what the law says to do. Yes, but God says you're to love also in the law that you're to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just about going through the motions and giving it, uh, giving it lip service. And so God provides that solution, as we saw last time in Isaiah 118. God said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God is the one who can change the orientation of our heart. And so the issue for the heart, as we see from the law is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This is repeated in the Gospels. It's repeated in the New Testament. God is to occupy our thinking overwhelmingly. We're to be saturated with the Word. That is part of what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Pharisees have rejected that, 
and they are so focused on just learning what others have said. They're impressed with their own learning, and they're impressed with some of their leaders who have uh, contributed greatly to the understanding of the law, and they've reached that point where instead of studying the Torah itself, they're studying what their rabbis have said about it. And so that has been elevated to the same level as the authority of Scripture. I pointed out that is so typical. We've seen this uh, repeated in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox religions where they study the patriarchs, they study the church fathers, they don't study the word. And we see it also in evangelicalism. We study Calvin, we study Luther, we study Spurgeon. Fill in the blank with whoever some uh, dead and gone pastor is and our theologian, and we study what they said, and that becomes calcified into a, a hardened theology that elevates itself over a study of the Word. We need to know the Word. And I pointed out last time that I've been reading a book the, uh, uh, written by uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield dealing with her testimony. She was a radical leftist, Marxist, uh, feminist, lesbian professor at Syracuse University, and uh, her conversion, the article she wrote, Christianity Today, I mentioned it last Sunday, and then on Monday and Tuesday, apparently KHCB ran an interview with her on on the radio uh, a, a couple of days, and there are a number of YouTube videos where she's interviewed by different people, and it's really fascinating uh, fascinating to to watch. But the one thing that she pointed out in one of those is that that she just immersed herself in the word. Her background, her PhD was in English literature. And so the way she would approach the study of the Bible, reading the Bible, was to take whole chunks of it, not just a verse here or a chapter there, but she would sit down and read Genesis all the way through in one sitting. She would read through uh, Matthew in one sitting. She would read through these books at one time and then go back and read them over and over and over again. And see, that's that's what immerses a person into the Word. And what struck me is as I read her uh, testimony, and as she talks about some other people who were who were Christians or had become Christians and were not having the kind of success in withdrawing from the whole homosexual movement and those particular sins that that. Uh, uh, defeated them, I, I looked at and I was thinking, what makes the difference? And the difference is always volition, but with her, there was this recognition at the point of her salvation that this was now supposed to be her life, like before feminist theology, uh, queer theory, uh, Marxism, postmodernism, that was her life. Now she had to completely get rid of all of that thinking and immerse herself in the Word. And that's what happens, doesn't happen a lot of times, is that Christians don't immerse themselves in the Word. And so they don't live a life that is characterized by the kind of victory over sin that the Scripture says, and they just continue in it, and maybe they fade out uh, before long because the Bible just doesn't work for me. Well, you never really tried it. You never really devoted yourself to learning the Word and letting it saturate your soul and completely transform 
transform your thinking. And that's what Deuteronomy 6.5 is talking about. We have to immerse ourselves and become saturated with our relationship with God and with the Word of God. So Matthew 15.10, Jesus, a little time has gone by from this confrontation. If you notice at the beginning, it says, when he had called the multitude to himself. So the confrontation with the uh, scribes and the Pharisees took place apart with Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now a little time has gone by, and uh, remember they have returned back to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and now the multitude is there, and sometime later, maybe an hour or two has gone by, he calls the multitude to himself and says to them, Listen and understand. Pay attention. And the word there that is translated understand is the word suniami, which certainly has the idea of understanding, but it's a little more than that. It has the idea of think about it. Don't just say, okay, well, I, I can tell you what the definition is for each of those, those words that you have used, and I can paraphrase back to you what you have said. The idea is to fully comprehend, think about, analyze it, and let what Jesus has said transform the way you think. Think about it analytically and personally in terms of the way it transforms the way you think. So Jesus is saying, listen and understand. Listen and think about what it is that I am saying. And then he makes this statement in verse 11. He says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. This is stated as a universal principle, and when we look down to verse 15, we read, Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. He calls this a parable. Well, the Greek word parabole is a little bit broader of a term than our word parable, and it can also include uh, concepts related to uh, universal sayings, proverbs, uh, things of that nature. So Jesus says that that they need to pay attention to this. And what he is saying is it's not that what, what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's not what they eat. What we learn from other passages of Scripture is that eating and eating that which was forbidden in terms of, of the dietary law in the Torah was designed to teach something about spiritual truth. And the foods that were prohibited, we often think about uh, eating uh, uh, shellfish, oysters and shrimp and lobster and catfish, all the good things that they, they couldn't eat because that was all trafe. Trafe is the opposite of kosher. That was all trafe and that was all forbidden, prohibited, and they, they, they couldn't eat that. But all of those kinds of things that were uh, unclean in terms of the diet had to do with something that represented death. Most shellfish are, are scavengers. Catfish are scavengers. They're eating that which is dead, that which is carrying, that which is uh, at the bottom of the uh, of the lake or the river. And so anything that is that is related to death, which is a penalty for sin, renders a person unclean in the uh, according to the law. So it was teaching something. And it wasn't that there was something inherently wrong with the food. It wasn't that the food was somehow unhealthy. Because later on, when, when God declares and reveals to Peter that it is clean, that it is, that it is 
okay to eat all of this food now. It wasn't because he learned to cook pork better. It wasn't because he, he learned some new way of food preparation that transformed this food into something healthy. Now, I say that because every few years, there's somebody comes out with a new diet book, What Would Jesus Eat? And they start with this premise that, that well, the Mosaic Law gave God's dietary commandment to us, and so we need to follow that, and that'll make us healthy. Well, you're not doing reading your Bible right or doing good theology. That's not why it was given. It was given to teach something that we're that that sin permeates everything in in creation. And so Jesus is making a point that it's really not what you eat that defiles you; it's what comes out of the mouth this defiles a man. And this is somewhat of a cryptic statement. It's one verse. It's fairly short. And that's it. And then, and he says that to the multitudes, and then uh, his disciples came to him uh, in relation to this. By the way, the word koinao there uh, that refers to defile, it's an interesting word, koinao. It is a cognate to koinonia. Koinonia is the word, the verb for fellowship. Koinao has to do with that which is common or profane, and came to refer to that which was, uh, that would defile somebody because it wasn't holy, it wasn't set apart to God. Koinonia has to do with that which we have in common and comes to mean fellowship. Well, when we are defiled, it breaks fellowship. Just an interesting connection between those words. So his disciples came to him and said, did you know that the Pharisees were offended? Sounds like they've subscribe to political correctness. <laughs> you need to be concerned about this. They're the rich and the powerful. They're the ones who could really make life miserable for us. They might even kill you for it. Scandalizo, it's a word that means to cause someone to stumble or to offend them, to offend someone. This is the idea. So so the Pharisee, I mean, the, the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you need to watch out for this. Don't you know that they were offended when they heard this? And then he answered and said to them, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to look at the broader context. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gave seven different parables that began with the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, you have Jesus represented as the one who is scattering seed, and the seed is the gospel, and then there are four different responses to the gospel. The first one is the, the, the seed is taken away, snatched away by a bird, it doesn't take root, and that's the, uh, those who do not respond to the gospel at all. Then you have three different responses, and those Three different kinds of soil that come along after that are all positive responses to the gospel. The, the, the rocky soil believes, but it doesn't last long. But he's still saved because he believed the, the seed is, is germinated and it sprouts a little bit, and that shows that there's new life there. That, and so the, those are represented as all being seed. So the first set of parables, if you recall, the parable of soils all focuses on the response to the gospel. It's all the same seed, and it produces those four responses. The second parable is the interesting one. That's the parable of the tares 
and the wheat. The tares were called uh, a type of plant called darnel, which looks a lot like wheat. And so the enemy came and sowed a different seed in the field, and it grows up at the same time and grows up with the wheat, looks like wheat, and you can't really tell the difference. And if you try to pull it out of the ground and root it out uh, while the plants are growing, then it's going to pull the wheat out also, and you're going to destroy your crops. So Jesus says you wait until the end of the age, and then there will be a judgment, and God will sort out the difference between the tares and the wheat. That's what he's talking about here. He says, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted, that's the tares. Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. In other words, they, they're, they're going to get their judgment eventually. God will take care of that. And he says, just relax. They are blind, leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they'll both end up in the ditch. So just don't worry about them. Don't be concerned about their reactions or their hostility. And then verse 15, Peter comes along and says, well, explain this parable to us. Help us to understand uh, what it is that you are saying. Mark does not mention Peter by name. He just says the disciples asked this. It's interesting that, that Mark uh, is, is believed to have written down. He was... Uh, associated with Peter at the end of his life and that uh, it is believed that he wrote down Peter's account. So there's no mention of Peter in this episode in the Mark account. But here Peter is clearly the leader of the disciples. Matthew presents Peter often as the spokesperson for the disciples. And so it is Peter who brings their question uh, to, to the Lord, explain this parable to us. And so then Jesus answers him in verse 16, and Jesus says, Are you still without understanding? Now, in English, that is ambiguous because we use the same word for both second-person singular and second-person plural, but this is a second-person plural in the Greek. Jesus is saying, Are y'all, talking about the disciples, are y'all still without understanding. And he uses the noun form of the verb he used back in verse 10 to hear and understand, to think about it. And he says, so y'all are still without understanding. You haven't comprehended the meaning of what I have said. He said, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? The, the Greek is a little more graphic than that. The Greek says, uh, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and goes out into the latrine. That's cleaned up a little bit. In other words, it's not important. It just goes through your system. You eat it, swallow it, it gets digested and gets eliminated. It says what's important, verse 18, is those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. What defiles us comes from that corruption that is within us. Verse 19, we read, For out of the heart proceed evil uh, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so this concept of defile comes back to that which, which will, uh, 
which corrupts the relationship with God, which breaks and destroys any relationship with God. But as these different, uh, uh, different sins are listed and identified, they go back to the uh, Ten Commandments. When we looked at the beginning of this chapter the first time, I talked about the fact that God is the authority in the first tablet, uh, the first four commandments of the Ten, focus on God, that you shall have uh, no other gods before God, you shall not make any graven images, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and you shall uh, observe the Sabbath. And then we get into the list of various uh, sins that are listed, and we have the same things here. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. And so evil thoughts are listed here as just as much that which defiles a person as actions. Mental attitude sins are often precede overt sins and are more destructive. Murder is then mentioned. That is the sixth commandment. And then we have the mention of adultery and fornication. That's the seventh commandment. And then we have the mention of theft. That's the eighth commandment. Then we have the mention of false witnesses. That is the, uh, and slander. That's the ninth commandment. Where do these things uh, come? They come out of the heart. They come out of uh, man's nature because man is corrupt. So what we see embedded even in the New Testament is a recognition that the Old Testament emphasizes that, that basic basic corruption of man, and that man's problem is a heart problem. And when we look at this word heart, it's used only a few times literally in the Old Testament. It's used in Exodus 28.30 that the breastplate of the high priest was put over his heart. It's used in 2 Samuel 18.14 and 2 Kings 9.24 dealing with injuries that were fatal. But primarily it is used to refer to something that is at the center of something. For example, in Exodus 15.8, it talks about the heart of the sea. That's the center of the sea. It talks about, in Deuteronomy 4.11, speaks of the heart of heaven. That would be a way of referring to the throne of God, the center of heaven. Uh, it talks about the heart of the earth, meaning the middle or the inner part of the earth. So the idea and the metaphor of heart is not talking about, uh, not related to the, the cardiological function, the beating function of a heart, but it, it's related to something was at the center of something. And so this is used to, re, to refer to human being. Now, human beings are composed of three parts. The first is that we have a body. We have a body, and then we have a soul. And then we also have a human spirit. Now, when Adam was created, he had body, soul, and spirit. And there are a few passages in Scripture that speak of the body, the soul, and spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God divides the soul from the spirit. So there's clearly a distinction, even though in other passages... The term soul and spirit may be used synonymously. They're clearly used as referring to distinct elements at, um, 
at different times. Now, it is this that is described as the heart of man. This is the command center. This is the control center for every one of us. It's our soul, and if we're regenerate, if we're saved, if we trust in Christ, then we also have this this human spirit. We're born without it. We're spiritually dead, but we become spiritually alive. Something new is added. We've been studying this in First Peter on Thursday night, the doctrine of regeneration. And so we are given this human spirit at the instant of our salvation. This enables our soul to now have a relationship with God. But we still have a problem, as I've indicated in the diagram, and that is a problem of our sin nature. And that has corrupted us. And so I just want to review a few things about the sin nature. This is our enemy. We often talk about the fact that, that the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world and the devil are external. Satan is the chief angel that fell and led a third of the other angels in rebellion against God. And 1 Peter 5 uh, says that he is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's an external threat. He is an external enemy. He is more of an enemy to us than Iran is to Israel. And how should we treat enemies? We want to destroy the enemy. We want to remove them so they have nothing to do with us. Well, the way Satan primarily influences us is through the various religious systems and philosophical systems in human history. And they are, they, all of these different systems, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, whether it has to do with uh, Islam or some other uh, form of Christianity that denies grace, what happens is that we become influenced by those things because they appeal to our sin nature. They're on the outside. There are various philosophical systems that seek to construct reality as if it exists apart from God. And, and so, so these appeal to people's sin nature. The worst enemy that we face is our sin nature. It's inside of us. And that sin nature constantly influences us, and it's a source of corruption and corrupts us. So the first thing we need to remember about the sin nature is that it it, it corrupts our being, our the totality of our being. And probably is seated in the flesh, because it's called that many times in the body, but it influences it influences our soul and our thinking. Let's just see a few passages that emphasize this. First Corinthians fifteen forty two uh, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And then it says the body is sown in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. And then verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this corruptible, that is our body has been so corrupted by sin that there has to be a transformation of this body so that it can be raised and spend eternity with the Lord. Romans 6.6 6 uses a distinctive term, refers to this sin nature as the body of sin. And, and Paul says that knowing this, that our old man, that, that's not the sin nature, that's everything we were before we were saved. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, something distinct from the old man, that the body of sin might be done away with. That's talking about our sin nature, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're supposed to do away with that. It's, it's a constant battle throughout the Christian life to not yield to the sin nature. In Romans 7, 5, and 7, 18, and 7, 25, Paul gives us 
uh, more accounting of the use of the sin nature in relation to the flesh. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. So flesh is related to the sin nature, Romans 7.18. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That is the corruption of the sin nature. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. So there's that that uh, correlation between sin and the flesh. And then Romans 8, 1, Paul says, We don't walk according to the flesh, that's the sin nature, but according to the spirit. There's that contrast between the flesh and the sin nature again and again. Romans 8, 8, he says, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then the marching orders for the Christian life in Galatians 5.16 were to walk by means of the Spirit, and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So this identifies the source of this conflict after salvation is we're constantly in this battle. So the first thing we note is that we are in a body of corruption, and we're always going to fight this battle. Even as believers, though we are regenerate, we've been freed from the uh, tyranny of the sin nature. We haven't been freed from the presence of the sin nature. The second thing we need to realize is that it's called a sin nature because it represents the essential corruption due to sin. Some people get all wrapped around the axle when you talk about the word nature. But the word nature simply refers to that this is is that the orientation, the corruption of our entire being. It's our capacity to rebel against God. And the sin nature itself uh, influences our soul. It's the source of temptation, but it's not, as we'll see in a couple of points, the source of sin. Third point is since we're born spiritually dead, we have no orientation to God or the things of God. This is seen in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, the, the Greek says the sukikos man, the soulish man, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. So the unbeliever can't understand the things of God because he is spiritually dead. Now, the fourth thing we have to understand is that the sin nature is the source of temptation but not the source of sin. A lot of people think it's that way. But remember, Adam sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. Adam sinned, and in Adam's uh, sin, what we see is that there's an external source of temptation, which is his lovely wife offering him that gorgeous fruit, and he took it. But he didn't have a sin nature. His volition acted upon that temptation, so volition is the source of our sin. Adam sinned in the garden, by choosing to disobey God. Therefore, all sin, whether it's mental, verbal, or overt, has its source in our volition. We can't say, well, I was made that way, because we're all made that way. Hello. Every one of us, whether the problem is homosexuality, heterosexuality, whether the problem is arrogance, which is the root of all sin, whether the problem is gossip or slander or maligning, the problem is we're all born with corruption. We can't say, well, well, God made me, or God made me that way, or I was just made that way, so, so I'm not responsible. James says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed by his own lust. That comes from the sin nature. 
And then James says, then when desire has conceived, when we choose to yield to that desire, it gives birth to sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. We're tempted all kinds of ways every day. But saying no means we don't sin. Saying yes means we do sin. It is not a sin to be tempted sexually. You hear that often in all the debate that goes on with homosexuals. This is a problem because, and and with heterosexuals, well, I feel these urges. I have this temptation. But that's not sin. It's not sin until you yield to those temptations, and that brings volition to play. Fifth thing that we need to understand is that the core of sin, the sin nature, is an orientation to self versus orientation to God. We have to recognize that since only God can satisfy the longings of the human heart, the longings of the human soul, that that when we are sinning, we are engaged in a substitution for God. In Ecclesiastes 3.11 Solomon says in the second line, God has put eternity in our hearts. Every human being has a desire for God. Some have referred to this as a God-shaped vacuum. But the heart, the corrupt heart, the sinful heart is set against God, and the spiritually dead person seeks to fill that vacuum with the things of life. Our basic orientation is arrogance. We start with self-absorption, because that's the orientation of our sin nature. We're full of ourselves. And this leads to self-indulgence. The more we focus on me and what I need, the more we're going to indulge it. The more we indulge it, the more we justify it in self-justification. And the more we're engaged in self-justification, the more we're engaged in deceitfulness. And what we're doing then is elevating ourselves to be the ultimate authority in our life, and that is uh, self-deification. And Arrogance, then, is the basic orientation of the human heart. And because there is a God-shaped vacuum there, there's a desire to fill it with something that will give our life meaning and understanding and significance. And whenever we look to anything other than God for meaning and happiness and significance, it's idolatry. And so this is the core of what happens in the sin nature is that it has these these desires, these lusts, as Scripture says. Ephesians 4.2, we're told that we are to put off concerning our former con- conduct, that's the old man of Romans, Romans 6, uh, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And so we're driven by these lusts. Now, this is a familiar diagram here of our, of our sin nature. And at the core, we have these lust patterns that drive us in different directions. We have sexual lust, such as uh, you may have uh, heterosexual lust or homosexual lust, but they're both lust. Well, what's at, the, what's at the root of your lust pattern? It's pride, arrogance. That's the core. You may have power lust. For example, in the Bible, you have Rehoboam, who was the first king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and due to power lust, he refused to back off of his excessive taxation. He wanted to be in control. So that's an example of powerless. But what's the core problem? His arrogance, his self-absorption. Other people have status lust. They want to be somebody. That's related to approbation lust. They're lust for recognition, recognition, for approval, for fame. 
You have materialism lust. What's the solution to lust problems? Our relationship with God. The solution to homosexual lust isn't heterosexuality. It isn't heterosexual lust. The solution to heterosexual lust is having a relationship with the Lord, being focused on being sanctified. The solution to heterosexual, I mean, homosexual lust is the same thing. It's a desire to be close to God, focus on God, be concerned about being sanctified and living a holy life. That's the solution to every lust problem, whether it's approbation lust, whether it's status lust, whether it's materialism lust. The solution is always humility toward God, and that's the problem that the Pharisees had. They have rejected the authority of God, so they're not humble. They are focused in elevating themselves, and they are involved in self-promotion. And they have created an idol out of their tradition as opposed to being submissive to God. We learn that these lust patterns are inherently deceitful. Uh, Ephesians 4.22, which I had up there a minute ago, refers to deceitful lusts. So they deceive us into thinking they really give us pleasure and they really provide meaning in life. Whether it's sexual, whether it's power lust or approbation lust, it convinces us that's the path to happiness and stability. A seventh point is that lust becomes the foundation for all sin. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures. The idea is that those sins that are listed here are the result of serving our lust patterns and our pleasures. And then the last point is that lust becomes the link between the sin nature inside each of us and the external world system. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust pattern is what motivates and drives us. Now, what's the solution? Three-point solution. First of all, we have to know the Word of God. We have to know what has been provided for us by the Lord Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection that sin is paid for, and we also have to be, uh, and we have to implement that in terms of our daily spiritual life. Romans 6.3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And so the baptism by the Holy Spirit breaks the power of the sin nature. So yes, you can now say no to temptation. We have been freed from sin. So we need to make decisions that are consistent with what we know. Uh, in Romans uh, 6, 11, and 12, Paul says, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. In six twelve, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Figure out where your areas of weakness are in terms of your sin nature and don't go there. Don't make yourself susceptible to temptation in those areas. We are to then walk by the Spirit. And we're told if we walk by the Spirit, we won't bring to completion the lust of the flesh. It's possible. You can't do it. In your own power, you can only do it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the provision that God has given us. It's grace. It's not based on following some legalistic system, which is what the Pharisees opted for. It's on the basis of developing a personal, close walk with the Lord. And when we're walking closely with him, 
These other options are not the temptation they are because we are saturated and focused on that relationship with him, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that there can be real victory over sin in our lives, and that's the goal is to walk by the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we do, there's a solution. That's simply confession of sin, but the idea is to stay in fellowship, to walk by the Spirit, to abide with Christ, to walk in the truth, to walk in the light. Father, challenge us as believers that, yes, indeed, we can surmount and have victory over the sins that so easily beset us. Father, but the issue for the unbeliever is not dealing with sin in terms of a daily life, but it's dealing with the penalty of sin, being spiritually dead, being born that way, and the solution to that is recognizing that Christ died for your sins. By simply believing in him, you have eternal life. It's very simple. Just trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and at that instant you have eternal life. You become a new creature in Christ. All things, uh, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That Right where you sit, you, if you trust in Christ as Savior, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we learned today, that God the Holy Spirit will bring them back to our memory, that we may reflect upon them, think about them, and implement them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.